Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Dope Black Woman podcast, the podcast where we share stories of black excellence as part of our safe digital sisterhood. I'm Leanne Levers. I'm Rashan. You can call me Shan. I'm Livs. This week on the podcast, we're talking about being a young carer with Kemi Forbes. So as we know, in the black community, family is everything. And looking after your elders and fellow family members is something that is often just expected um, and often just part of what it means to be part of a family. Um, but the problem with this is it doesn't leave much room for conversations about being a young carer and the responsibility that comes with that. And, you know, are there any support, resources, guidance available to help with what can be a really challenging and emotional part of your life? So today on the podcast, we have our very first guest. Whoop, whoop! I didn't realise I was your first. Yeah, you're special, girl. (laughs) Our very first guest, um, Kemi Forbes. Um, Kemi was a young adult carer for 10 years and looked after her mum. So we're going to talk about her experience, both personally and also professionally, because it is something you work, it's a career field you also work in. But before we get into all of that, I think it's important that we establish the terms, because something I only learned today is that young carers... And young adult carers are not the same thing. So, Kemi, first of all, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank Thanks you for having for, me. Thank you for coming on our podcast. So, what is the difference and what is it the term young carers actually mean? So, in short, a young carer is basically anyone that is 17 and under who has a caring role. Young adults generally are 18 to 25 um, who have a similar caring role, but obviously they're, they're still adults. They're just young. Okay, so... Um, as soon as you reach that 18 mark, literally on your 18th birthday, that means... That's when you become a young adult carer. Right. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about your own experiences growing up and what was your life as a young adult carer like? Yeah, sure. So for me, my mom was pretty well um, all throughout my childhood, kind of no real health issues, actually. Um, it wasn't until I went to university, went there when I was 18, um, had the first year there, Everything was fine. Um, I came home for the summer. um, So I'd turned 19 at this point. And my mom sat me down with her friend and basically told me that she had been diagnosed with early onset dementia. Now, she was only, I think, 53 at the time. And obviously, dementia is usually a condition that you kind of associate with people who are like 70s, 80s, like your grandparents. Exactly. So devastating, definitely. Um, 
out of the blue. Like there were so many kind of emotions at that time, just not really understanding how can you even be diagnosed with something like this at that young age. Um, and, you know, luckily it was caught quite early. So I was able to continue my studies, um, came home at the age of 21 and then became a carer full time. And then obviously as mum's health deteriorated over the years, that's when the caring role really started to increase. Um, the pressures really kicked in. And I guess the lack of support that is around was then really apparent to me at that point. And did you at any point realise that you were a carer? Like, was that term that... Did you even, like, realise that was what was happening? Not or did really. you just think, I'm looking after my mum? Yeah, that's it. It was just... And again, I, I guess, you know, you've kind of mentioned it already. It's something that within the black community, I'm just a daughter looking after her mum, you know? Mm. Um, it probably took about five years or so before... Um, we had any involvement with like adult social care and they were actually highlighting to me actually you're a carer the, that was probably the first time that I'd even realized it um, and how did that come about I basically was just struggling mm. yeah I mean you know because she was diagnosed early there weren't there weren't loads of things that I was having to do initially mm -hmm. but then as things got a lot worse you know I was having to do a lot more physical care so helping her to bathe, helping her to get dressed, that sort of thing. And at that point, that's when the pressures really start to pile on. And then, you you know, it really starts to impact you and your own life. And I'm not even sure how we even got referred to adult social care. I mean, I'm glad that we did. Mm. But again, even that highlights the fact that it's sometimes difficult to get support when you actually need it, you know. Um, but yeah, so obviously got the support that we needed at that point. And that's when they actually said to me, there are organisations that can actually help you as a carer. There are carers' charities. Mm. First time I'd heard about it. Did, did, yeah. When it came to getting help from the organisations, was that something that required like a waiting list? Because I know like no, with a lot of the health no. services, there's lots of waiting lists. I guess the difference is it's not part of the health services. It's usually independent charities that run these services. Mm. So usually they can kind of pick up referrals really quickly okay, and good. the support can start as soon as. But the issue is knowing about the support in the first place. yeah. Um, what kind of support did you actually get? Like, what were the kinds of things that they were able to help you with? So I think for me, um, at the time when I was getting support from them, I was about 24 at the time, 23, 24. And a lot of the other people that were in the group that I was in were sort of 18. They were kind of going through mm -hmm. that transitional period. So it was a little bit difficult to kind of relate to them in certain aspects. But they did a lot of, um, I guess you would call it respite. So it might be evenings out, you might go and do something together as a group that gives you that space away from the caring role at home. Mm. Um, you know, and then obviously advice services, letting you know about maybe any benefits that you might be entitled to, any support that you can get from the local authority in terms of care workers, um, you know, funding that might be available for you to take a proper break, that sort of thing. So, I mean, was there any part of you that found that really difficult? Because I'm imagining you know, you're put in a space where the majority of the people are 18 and you're a couple years older. So was there any part of you that just thought like, I don't know, like... That like you don't fit in? Yeah, like, yeah. shit, I wish I knew about this when I was their age. Yeah, like, definitely. I'm kind of a bit behind here. Yeah, a little bit. Well, it's a bit of both. So it was obviously difficult to relate to some of the people that were accessing the same group as me because there was that age difference. Um but I mean, I'm someone sort of throughout life who doesn't really have regret. So I didn't necessarily regret that I didn't get the support earlier. I was just thankful that I had it at that time. Yeah. Um, 
And in a way, I think people within that group sometimes used to look to me as... Support. Yeah, because I was older. So it was like, you know, you've probably been there, you've already done this. Mm. And to them, I was old, you know. Being 24 and they're 18, they saw me as an old lady. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, whoa, heck. I'm only 24, yeah. It's true. That's what they used to think. But yeah, so um, I think it it was quite nice to kind of have that relationship with them. Although Mm. it wasn't... it didn't necessarily feel like they were my peers, but it was. I was still able to obviously answer any questions that they had, yeah. as well as still getting the time away from the caring role when I needed it. And out, out of curiosity, what was the demographic like in terms of race? I think they were all white, to be honest. Really? really? Yeah, yeah, to be honest. Because in my head, I think coming here culturally, as, as Liv said in the beginning, like it's expected that when you're part of a black family, that's just what you do, you take mm. care of. Whereas I and maybe this is just an ignorant assumption, but, you know, the the propensity of care homes are often filled with white people. Generally. And so I'm surprised to hear that there are lots of white carers that would have been responsible for... I don't know if they were responsible for their parents or for other siblings or... So did you find, like, a stark difference or distinction between your experience and those of white carers or some of the things that they had to go through versus what you were? I mean, the difference is, I guess... Part of the, the groups, that one of the things about the groups that we used to attend is that there was very little focus on the caring role specifically mm. because that time was used to be away from it. There weren't always lots of conversations about, you know, what people were doing in the home, you know. Um, and so it, it's difficult for me to kind of compare my experiences. Mm. But I will say this was in Nottingham. This wasn't in London. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So that, so it, that, makes, that, adds, that adds to it. It adds, it? yeah, it definitely mm. adds to it. You know, if that was here... I work in Camden um, for a carer's charity. So obviously Camden's a very diverse borough and you see in terms of the people that access support there, um, it's hugely mixed. It's very, very different to what I experienced. Mm. Leanne, you just mentioned that, um, you know, the majority of care homes are filled with white residents a lot of the time. So do you guys think, is there like a stigma attached to putting your mum, dad, grandmother in a care home in the black community? Oh, for sure, definitely. Yeah, definitely. When my parents got sick, it wasn't even an option for me. Like it, my parents didn't even want to have like nurses or outside people take care of them. So that this kind of stuff that Kemi is also talking about largely fell on me until I was no longer able to cope. And obviously in Jamaica, we don't have those kinds of services, like unless you're paying out of pocket for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it was even an, an option to put. Um, them in our home unless it's a situation but Kemi for instance you are a single you're, you you have other siblings but you're the only child for your mom right? Yes yeah but interestingly what I was just going to say is in Nottingham um, it's very interesting in the sense that a lot of the care homes so I ended up um, you know moving my mom into a nursing home in her later years because it was it was just way too much for me to kind of take on by myself um, and Obviously, there's loads of care homes around and we would go and visit them and largely the residents were white English people. Interestingly, there was one care home I always remember and it basically was a black care home. Like it <laughs> that was sounds lit. Jamaican. <laughs> no, listen, listen, the menu. We went there to visit and they had the menu on the board and they had yam and they had yam, dumplings right. and they had plantain. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. But then obviously, you know, that would be fantastic in terms of engaging with 
Um, People like you. Yeah, of course. You know, and obviously my mum is a black Jamaican woman, so having having her be in that environment would be great. But then you kind of have to factor in the care aspect and is the care suitable for her? And mm. for me, when I looked at other places that were available, it, it didn't quite meet mm. the mark. So and the price. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, this is yeah. something people don't like to talk about mm. because yeah. it's putting a price tag on your relatives but it's like it's getting out of your pocket yeah yeah that you i mean you hear stories all the time of you know families who are made homeless because they have to sell their home to pay for the care of their family member and it happens all the time you know um there's sort of very strict guidelines in terms of how much saving someone can have and that kind of thing and it it you know it it's not right you know people pay they pay their taxes they make their nhs contributions etc and you would you would hope that they would get a lot back when they actually need that support yeah. and that mm-hmm. and that healthcare, and it just doesn't work like that. But yeah. actually, it's interesting. So, because I know that you put a lot of thought and you had a lot of like you, it was a really difficult decision for yeah. you to move your mom into yeah. a home. Was that because you didn't trust the system, or was that because you just? didn't want to relinquish that control or was it was there a certain level of like mistrust that you felt in terms of relinquishing your care giving over your care into into kind her? Of, I mean there were a few factors one of them comes down to family now generally my family was super support, supportive mm. um my mom has a lot of siblings um but there definitely were people in my circle who were very much against mm. me putting That's her in friend. a nursing home family um, oh, okay. yeah family members and were they the same people that were helping? No. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Right, exactly. And that's usually the case. Usually what you find is it's the people that do not actually <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were gonna say no. Why are you talking? Because Why? It's, so it's, a, it's a common thing. And it's yeah, it's not to contribute towards the evil, <laughs> but you must send your mum to the best one. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you must stay at home and look after her until yeah. her last day. Mm. Um no matter what that does to, you know... To, to you or to your you. mental health. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Um, so, you know, battling with that is something that definitely probably delayed my decision to do that. Mm. Um, but yeah, the trust issue. I mean, for instance, we had care workers that used to come in before I moved mum to the nursing home. And I had some issues with them. You see these things on the TV all no, the time. No, it's real. And mm. it's real. My auntie it's real. has... Um, my aunt who... My aunt has got a carer... Oh, no, she doesn't have her anymore, but she had someone who used to come in to, like, help with cleaning. Mm. But my aunt's house is always clean. Mm. So it was, it's literally the, really the basic stuff, like, fluff the pillow, <laughs> <laughs> wash the four items in the sink. Like, she didn't really need to be there, but mm. it's more like, so, like, if she comes on that day and she needs her, she's she's there. If something was to ever And happen, she ended up, like, yeah. abusing her. And, like, what? my aunt's got this massive bruise that still hasn't gone away. Oh, it's been wow. only a year on her oh arm. Oh, my God. From where so the carer, cool. like, tried to attack her, the carer came in. I think my aunt said... So let's say she's got set rooms that she has to do. Yeah. Because she lives in like a flat. It's only two beds. Whatever, I think, let's say her room isn't, isn't normally to do the bedroom. I don't know what the, her, the arrangement was, but she asked her to do something that wasn't part of her usual room, usual thing to do. Yeah. But it was still to do with cleaning. But it was something easy like, can you just make the bed? And the woman said she's not doing it. Oh, wow. So she's like, okay, if you're not going to do it, I'll just do it. You can just leave then because this is what I need help with. And then it turned into like an argument and the woman ended up like pinching up her skin. Oh my god! And then my aunt complained about it and they didn't even do anything. Yeah. Like, so the woman doesn't doesn't support her anymore, but now she has yeah. no support. Yeah. That and then now she has to like, now she has to go to, um, now she's asking me to find 
like private care to get to support her but she shouldn't have to do that yeah exactly yeah, yeah. It's, it's so common and I mean yeah you see these things on TV all the time and you kind of think oh yeah I see that but it's not going to happen to me yeah you know thankfully I didn't have anyone that came into my home that physically injured my mother thank goodness because boy um but I had people who, you know, really took liberties. I had one woman that used out my phone bill. Mm -hmm. She used to come in the morning at nine o'clock and I would leave to go to work and I would get the phone bill at, at 9.03. So she's only been there three minutes. Mm. She's phoning her boyfriend. What? Nah. She's phoning people, phoning sort of city council to Is get your jobs boyfriend done. not at work either? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, ran up a massive phone bill. And then obviously, you know, I had to address it and she got sacked. Oh, now I don't have the money back. She just started, you know, when you when you address things with people and their response is to start crying rather than actually oh, apologising and getting things it. right. Yeah. Yeah. Was so, she white? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they always go to tears, innit? Ah, <laughs> uh, white woman tears. Um, Shan, you touched on the fact that your aunt had a, well, I guess cleaner isn't the right term. But well, she was a she was a carer to support her, but she was only supporting like cleaning needs. Yeah, so she wasn't doing like the cooking and stuff. I think some people, when they have like extra support, they might do like cooking. I think my grandma has one person that does cooking and one person that does cleaning. Yeah, I think she has my yeah. great gran. But, but yeah, uh, this person was specifically just for cleaning. Yeah, but you have your own experience of being a young carer. Mm. So can you tell us what happened or like is um, that still the case? No, it's definitely not the case now. And it's only something that I really acknowledged, I think, earlier this year when I was, like, doing research into what it meant to be a young carer. And I was like, oh, it sounds just like me. Like, that was, <laughs> oh, so you said that, that's what it was. But I think, it's, I think it goes back to what you said at the start about there kind of been an expectation for, within, like, black communities in particular to just support older people in the family or to support your family in general. So, like, my mum... Um, this wasn't the person I cared for, but whenever she's been ill, and in the last five years, it's been, there's been like periods where she had like a serious operation, I've all automatically thought, okay, I need to stop working now to support my mum, or mm -hmm. I need to be... Like, I've also, like, basically, if I, know, if, I, if I know she's going to go into an operation, I've naturally automatically thought, like, okay, it's on me now, I've got to manage it. Mm -hmm. Even though she's married, I still feel like it's on me. I'm the older sibling, I've got to deal with anything. And even, like, if my stepdad... Because there was a particular time when me and my stepdad was both at home, like, managing, what, like, the house hold because I've got siblings but it still felt like to me that I had to be the one that was in control of it mm. I don't know where that where that pressure comes from but yeah. it's something that I feel like naturally is embedded in me and that's not what my mum gave me because my mum my mum was, was actually like at the time just let my stepdad deal with it she's like why are you doing everything just let him deal with it he's the dad do you mm. know what I mean but in my head it's like I have to be the one that is caring for her and looking after her yeah with my own experience it was that it was kind of like covertly done, if that's the right word. I was at school. I was, um, I think, 14 at the time. And I've got an aunt that I'm really close to that I've been close to for years. And then one day I went to her house and she was like, oh, can you help me clean? And I was like, cool, no problem. And then she gave me like some change at the end, like some money at the end. And then she was like, can you come next Thursday and help me clean? And I was like, cool, no problem. And then it ended up being a, a situation where I was going every Thursday and getting money. Mm. Well, sometimes she'd give me money and sometimes she wouldn't give me money. But only years after when I spoke to her, that was her reaching out for support. So mm. she didn't wanna she didn't wanna speak to someone and be like, this is the same one I was talking about who had a carer and didn't work out well. Right. But rather than her like seeking help and support from family members and saying, I need help with cleaning or I need help with this or that, she just kind of like thought 
made her own little navigation around it, which was by making me believe I was getting pocket money and right, yeah, having yeah. this, like, job that's an easy job by helping my aunt clean. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, Does yeah, that yeah. make sense? She yeah, didn't want to outright say... Yeah, rather than her consciously being like, I need to, like, I feel like as well as a black woman, you're meant to be strong. So rather than her being like, I need, to, I need support as a black woman, she was like... She made it into doing it a favor for for you she, as well. I think she looked like, like she I'm told herself, sure. I'm, like, "She needs pocket money, so I'll get her to clean my house for for a few hours and give her money." She mm-hmm. made it into that, and actually, it was I need to help and support. And I feel like no one at the time, like, kind of had that light bulb moment in their head to be like, "We need to support her." Or why is Rashan going to her house every weekend to clean her house? Like, no one had that light bulb moment. It was just like, "Oh, she's getting pocket money. That's fine." Mm-hmm. Do you get what I mean? I but think like, it's very difficult for. Um, women in the black community especially older women to actually admit that they need help yeah Mm. i do it you know i do all the time sometimes we see it as a sign of weakness so if there's something that you need and you feel like you need to ask someone else to help you with that it can sometimes make you feel like you know you're 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 less of a woman i I shouldn't have to i definitely feel that plays a part because we're still close to this day and i talk Mm. to her a lot about like her dealing with depression and feeling like she's like as years as it's got, she's got like a lot of things that are wrong with her. Like now she's got, she's burned in one eye. At that time, it wasn't like that. Right. Now she like sometimes struggles to walk. At the time, it wasn't like that. She's lost a lot of her independence. Mm-hmm. So where she was like the cool young person, all her friends would be around every Christmas. Like everyone would come into her house all the time. It now feels like she's isolated. She has a lot less friends, mm-hmm. a lot less people come around. And I feel like all of that played has played a massive part. And I don't feel like she talks to a lot of people about it or anyone reaches out to talk to her about it because every time I'm at, I'm at her house mm-hmm. that topic comes up I feel like I'm her outlet for talking about it and that's fine because we're close so we talk about loads of things but I think that's another whole side to this whole spectrum about because I'm older and I'm aware of it that's fine to deal with but if I was younger and I was dealing with her talking about like her depression and things she's dealing with that would have a lot of like a negative impact on me and my yeah. own well-being yeah. and I feel that's a whole other conversation about young carers and support for them yeah and I think it's worth recognising, you mentioned your mum earlier. Um, and I think we need to remember that, like, even though your stepdad was in the picture, that doesn't make you any less of a young carer. Mm. It's like, even if there are other adults in that situation, it doesn't mean you're not a young carer. Because I think that sometimes happens as well. Mm. Where, like, say the mum is ill and the dad is around and you and the dad will, like, take it in turns. And, like, some people be like, as we've said, like, oh, this is just, like, what you do for your family. This is what, yeah. this is what you do for I your parents. Just like, there's, like, there's obviously extremes on the scale. So, for me, I find it even weird to, like, hear your story and then be like, yeah, I was a young carer because I feel like on the spectrum of it, it's two different experiences. Do you get what I mean? I get what you're saying. And I feel like with my aunt, even though I don't help her anymore in terms of, like, the cleaning, I still help her with caring responsibilities till this day. I still call her and be like, do you want to go to Sainsbury's and get food shopping? Because I know she's not going to ask anyone for that help. Mm. but I know that if I've got to do mine I might as well do hers do you get what I mean but she won't ask anybody I'll, yeah. if I go to her house I'll always be like what do you want from Tesco's because sometimes I've been to her house and nothing's even really in the fridge mm-hmm. and rather than her being like I've been ill this week and didn't have the strength to go the Tesco's is next door like it's oh. like three doors yeah. down but sometimes she does not have the strength to go and no one's checking in on her to be like um, let me go and do this or let me go and do that do you get what I mean so yeah. I feel like because I'm aware of certain things I've taken it on my responsibility to still be a carer, but not, like, full-on. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. even like, on a mental level, like, she texts me, like, yesterday, she's like, I haven't heard from you. It's been, like, two days. But I call her Lenny <laughs> every morning when I'm walking Aww. to the station just to check she's all right. When I was at uni and I lived far away, 
I know that that, that was a big toll on her and my mum because I've always supported them a lot. So with her, every Sunday I'd call her and we'd like be like, what are we going to make today? And it would be a new Caribbean dish. And we'd be on FaceTime mm-hmm. making this new dish. And that was like my way of making sure that her mental health was like staying afloat. And a lot of it is about companionship, right? Is having somebody around. Because even some some carers that will come in, like when you have NHS-assisted support or whatever, some people genuinely just come in to be there and mm. to talk and to, mm. you know. So I think even even in that context, I think it's still important because you're still supporting someone's mental health while they're going through this really difficult process. Mm. Just mm. to touch on what you were saying about the sort of spectrum of kind of caring roles and responsibilities. Um, In the work that I do, I I support young adult carers. And one of the things that I'm always having to remind them of is identifying as a carer doesn't have to mean that you are, you know, changing someone's incontinence pads every few hours or bathing them or Mm -hmm. dressing wounds and all of those kind of things. What I always say is, if you are doing something for that person that they cannot do for themselves then you're a carer, full Mm, stop. mm. If you are spending time with them because they're lonely and they're isolated, um, you know, if if you're going to the shop to do their food shopping and it's something that they can't do for themselves, like, yeah, it might seem like it's a a minor thing. You just nip into Tesco. But actually, it's something that they cannot do. They don't have the independence to do that. Mm. And that automatically means that you have a caring role. And so... It's just kind of getting people to understand that it it doesn't have to be the extreme. Mm. And even if it is something that you deem as minor, it can still have a detrimental effect on you Mm. if you're doing Mm. that and not necessarily talking about it or, you know, getting support around it where you can. It it all counts. Yeah. Because everyone, at the end of the day, everyone's experiences is individual. And because just all families are individual, which brings me on to Leah. Hi. As we like, as you mentioned earlier, you do have your own experience in this area so do you just want to explain a bit about where that comes from yeah so my story is a little bit random I guess uh so my parents were separated at the time and my mom was living in the Cayman Islands my dad was living in Jamaica I was on holiday going to see them well I was in Jamaica and ironically I remember what day it was as well it was February the 20th um but both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer on the same day. Mm-mm. So I was wow. with my dad and he wasn't feeling well. So I got a doctor to come in and then, you know, they basically ran some tests and told us. And then I called my brother who was with my, both of my siblings lived in my, in Cayman Islands with my mom at the time. And so I called my brother and I was like, some shit's going down. We need to sort this out. Like mm-hmm. my dad had pancreatic cancer and his prognosis was quite short. So ironically, my brother had just left the doctor's office with my mom where she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Wow. And because my brother and sister were both in full-time jobs and I was at uni, and so financially they were kind of responsible. For, they became responsible for taking care of medical bills, et cetera, et cetera. Because as I mentioned in the Caribbean, we don't have that kind of welfare support system where we, if you pay, if you're going for a home, then you have to pay for it. If you're going, if you're asking for nurses, you have to pay for it. Hospital bills, we don't have a, you know, an NHS, that kind of thing. So they then took on the full financial responsibility. And for about 10 months, I took, I was full-time care for my dad. And I would kind of fly back and forth every time my mom had a treatment. So luckily my mom's treatments were like every three to six weeks, I think. And then my dad had weekly treatments for six weeks and then would take a break and then go for another six weeks. I'm just imagining you calling your brother like shit's going down. He's like, I know. (laughs) 
I, but actually, he didn't tell me on the day because I think oh, I was really? probably so flustered. But then my mom started giving me these really weird calls and I was like, something's not right. And so it was actually a couple mm. of days later that he was like, actually, we need to have a family conference because this has happened, blah, 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 blah. And do you think that's because women are like less likely to want to put that quote-unquote burden? So it's interesting. I think my mom... <laughs> probably was more okay with the burden than my dad was. So my dad was much older. He was in his 80s. And as like, you know, an older West Indian man, he was the one who didn't want to be the burden, didn't want to, he didn't even want to admit that he was sick. So even though he got this prognosis on that day, about six to eight weeks, he never actually acknowledged that he had cancer up until the very last kind of few, the month or whatever it is that he was alive. Um, So I think, And I think as a man having his young daughter take care of him, so I was responsible for bathing him, feeding him, being in the hospital. I think the female-male interaction of that was really difficult for him. Mm. And he didn't really know how to process that bit of it. And also, I think he was just really scared. Like, my dad was one of those people, again, typical of like a West Indian, you know, older gentleman. He did not show emotions and there was no arguments. He never raised his voice. Really like stoic, level-headed kind of guy. And the so when he became sick, um, he got really emotional. You know what I mean? And so I think Kemi and I have spoken about this as well. It's one of those things that when you do start to take care of people who are, people who are close to you, but also older people who are scared and vulnerable you kind of have to put your own emotions, your own emotions take a back seat. Mm-hmm. And I think for me in my particular case, it was difficult because my parents were separated and it caused a huge rift. My mom and I were like best friends before. And so me choosing to take care of my dad actually made her feel like right. I was choosing him over her. And that became a, a source of resentment. So and it's unfortunate, but our relationship actually deteriorated rather than getting closer, which is what happened with my dad. Um, over the course of the two so my dad was sick for about 10 months and then my mom was sick for about two years um, and so yeah it it comes with its own emotional roller coasters and all of that kind of stuff as well this is the dope black women podcast do you feel like your relationship changed with your mom yeah definitely because I think for better or worse um, oh, it's hard to say I mean my mom raised me by herself, so, you know, it was always just the two of us, so we were always really, really close. Um, and I guess the change in dynamic probably was harder for her to deal with than it was for me, I think. Um, obviously, you know, she was so used to taking care of me and making sure that I had everything that I needed, so t- to then have to be in a position where she's having to ask me to do things... Right. Um, and sometimes not even ask, like, you know, I could see it in her eyes. You can see the hurt and the pain mm. from, you know, her not wanting me to be burdened by her sickness. Mm. And there's no fault. There's no blame. It's life and these things happen. Um, but I th- I think we became closer. Um, and I think it got to a point where, you know, she, I think she probably loved me that much more because mm. she could see that obviously I was willing to kind of do all of these things for her. It definitely made us closer, but it it was extremely difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I speak very fondly of my mother and, you know, the relationship that we had. And sometimes I think I do that and make it sound kind of rosy when it when it really wasn't. But, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's it's life, these things happen, but I think it definitely it definitely brought us closer. Yeah. 
Roshan, I get the sense that you and your aunt, well, I mean, you said it, that you're super close. You like talk to her every day. But do you think her illness amplified that? Um, not so much, but it definitely made me appreciate older people a lot more. So, like, I spend a lot of time with old people in my family. Like, a lot of time. Like, I call my... So, I'm, like, third or fourth generation, I think. That's alive. Anywho. <laughs> but I call the cat. Basically, I call all of them all the time. And I always make sure they're right. So, oh, there's, there's, so nice. there's no great-grandparent. There's no great-aunt. There's no one... There's no nothing that can say that I haven't heard from Roshan. I always check for them. And it's because my aunt... We're so close, and she was like a second mum growing up. So it's like if I lost her, it'd be like losing my mum. Mm. And she doesn't. She hasn't always been transparent about how her health's been. And because I'm really like emotional, I think a lot of people kind of hide that from me. Whereas when I've gotten older, I've been able to like work out things for myself. But because she gets so ill, sometimes I'll be with her, and she'll be in a really ill situation or state, and she'll be like, "Oh, I'm gonna die soon," or she make weird like really annoying comments mm. like that. So I think when she every time she makes those comments. Sometimes I feel like it's for, for a cry for help. But it makes me re- remember that life is really this short. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah, I love my friends. And yeah, I love partying and doing everything else that young people love. But I would really regret if something ever happened to her and I didn't spend time with her. So that's why I go like above and beyond to make sure I'm always calling her. So that if anything happened to her, even now, I know I've already messaged her today. And I'd feel fine yeah. that. But the reason why I was smiling when you were talking about that love is because the other day I was really ill. Like, really, really, really ill. And I don't really like to ask for help. But I felt like I saw a different love from my mum. Because, like, I was there at my nan's house temporarily. But she told me to come to her house. It was meant to be for a night. and ended up being there for, like, two and a half weeks. And she really cared for me. Like, she slept downstairs with me the whole time. She, like, if I made a noise, you're right. Like, do you know I mean? <laughs> like she was literally, like, a, like, she was, like, my carer. Mm. Like, obviously, her mum is normally the a carer. But my mum has other kids. And because I'm the oldest, I don't really see her in that way anymore because a lot of a lot of growing up I spoke about this before but a lot of growing up was always me and my mum so like that's why I was smiling because it was like that love you kind of like felt like was rebirthed of your mum that's what I feel like I've recently experienced of mine because she was literally on my case for like every hospital appointment she was there any time I felt like the situation was getting worse she'd be like let's go to hospital now let's go, let's do this now and I hate hospitals and she would always just be there like mm. on my back so that's why I was smiling oh, that's good. it's funny as well I think as you said, kind of managing um, other people's emotions and that kind of thing. And as you just said, Kem, it was not always rosy and that kind of thing. But how is it that, like, how do you manage that? Because I think, I think there's, I look back and I think there are so many of my friends who complain about their parents or complain about their aunts or complain about their uncles. And it's like, oh, she's always on my case or she's always asking me to do something nice. She's always shouting at me. And I always think to myself, and even though obviously there were difficult moments where my mom and I did shout at each other and, I, you know, or my dad and I did get upset at each other while we we're going through that caring process, which is unavoidable and sometimes amplified by the caring process. And I guess more particularly in your case, because your mom had dementia, um, that I always said to them, it's fine, like, don't let that deter you from forming a relationship with that person because there's going to be a time where you wish that they were there to scream at you or shout at you Mm. or whatever it is so I think it's really good that you're so close with some of the older people in your family because it's it's not an easy thing for young people to do and it's not something that comes naturally to young people I think Mm. so I'm just curious as to how you guys manage the difficult parts of it where you know 
your aunt might just be moody or miserable one day or <laughs> or your my mom. My nan is stressing me out. <laughs> <laughs> my nan. Since I lived with my nan, which is since September, which wasn't a planned thing, it was really last minute. My landlord needed me to move out of the house in 30 days. I was going on holiday in two days. I had to randomly move out and now I've just been at my nan's. And me and my nan, you've heard from episode two yeah. with the dildo <laughs> story. That was my ride or die, my bad beam, my best friend. <laughs> I was closer with my nan than I was with my mum because we was just... So my nan, my mum and my nan's mum, we're all, we're all really close, like separately, but together as well. And I was really close with my nan. But since I've lived with her, I've, I've really grown apart from her and really like, we don't even talk in the house. Mm. Like, I said bye to <laughs> She said bye back. <laughs> if, if she opens the door, she opens it like on the latch and then we'll buff off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she's not even trying to see you. <laughs> Wait, the relationship's toxic. <laughs> Family is difficult. But right now, man. the relationship's mad. And like the first, the first like, good three weeks of the relationship being crazy I was just venting to my friends venting to my friends mm-hmm. venting to my friends and I, I, was, I was like feeling an- almost angry like at her because I feel like a lot of it is her to blame in my opinion but also angry is because like I don't like that sort of stuff that's not that's not me it doesn't make you feel good to I'm, have that I get on everyone yeah. like I'm and, and, and family is so important so to have that tension and I live in your house is wild right now I'm blocked yeah on <laughs> she's she blocked she's blocked me on whatsapp but she but, but she emails me she emails me I live in your house <laughs> so she'll block oh, that's she, so petty she, she, she emails me but she sees me in real life like imagine I've got an email today but I'm gonna go home and buck you at home like but that's what I'm saying sometimes wild. all the people do that kind of it's, petty shit but you have to just suck no, salt right no, honestly it's <sighs> I have to just breathe and be like, the, centri- the situation's temporary, the situation's temporary. And now it's like, I'm cool, I'm riding it out. Now it's just like, do whatever she says and just, I'd rather, like, I think sometimes pride can get in the way, ego can get in the way, but now I'm just like, now I would say, I don't know how she feels, but I feel fine. <laughs> the way I look at it, <laughs> no, the way I look at it is that life's too short. So if you want to have that malice, and I feel like, especially for Caribbean people and older Caribbean people, Malice is something they will hold on to. Grudge mm-hmm, is something they will hold yes. on to. I won't raise like that. I'm British as it get. <laughs> so this whole malice that she's holding on to, she can do that by herself. If I die on my way home today, that's on her conscience. If anything happens to her, that's not on mine. Because every morning when I see her, I say morning. When I leave the house, I say bye. I talk to her when I need to talk to her. This morning I said, I couldn't find my edge control. I went into her room for her edge control. I don't care if you're not talking to me. I need edge control. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, I, I just, for me, so to answer your question, for me, personally, as someone who's literally living, like, literally living in it, I just rise above it. Like, mm. if that's how you want to act, that's cool. Like, I always say to my siblings, how someone acts towards you is a reflection of their characters and not yours. Mm. So as long as I'm true to who I am, that's all I can do. So when she wants to move mad, move mad! Move mad! Because <laughs> all I do, I text my mum and we both laugh. <laughs> when she, I said I was on the phone to my mum. I was like, mum, did you see the email she sent me? She's like, oh, what email? I was like, when I replied to it, I CC'd you in it. She was like, what? I didn't... And I told her and she was just like, no, this woman's moving mad. But like, you got to, if you don't laugh at it, it's only going to make you be down. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like, especially when they're older, you've only got so much time with them left on the earth. I don't want my time left me resenting this woman or hating her. But I've, there's so much, like up until this point, up until September, it's literally been like my best friend. Like, me and my nan have gone Amsterdam together, just us two. Like, Aww, I haven't, I haven't yeah. gone on a solo holiday with my mum. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. Like, me and my nan are, like, super close. So, like, I, I can't make this current situation outweigh that. I've just got to rise above it and make it be, mm. okay, yeah, cool, we're not paddy-paddy like before, but 
to me, in my opinion, right now it's not in a bad place. It's just, it is what it is. Mm. Kim, was that your approach? I mean, I sometimes have a hard time with dealing with older members of my family because sometimes I think you're the older one. And they're going strong. Yeah, you should be the one that rises above. Leave me to kind of deal with things in my way. But I mean, Leanne knows certain situations that I've had with family members and my mom's passed away now and... um, one of her sisters has definitely caused me a lot of grief and anguish in recent times. And, you know, it's just that whole thing of, as you sort of said, you know, how they act towards you, it's a reflection of themselves. And I think I have always been someone who kind of internalizes a lot of things and I take that on myself. And I've had to, it's basically been a situation where I've had to have like a full on meltdown and then step back and actually realize, you know what, I'm good. You're the Mm. one that's unhappy. You're the one that's Mm. miserable. And you are, you know, the way that you're acting towards me is, you know, it is based on whatever Whatever you're going going through. 100%. You've got to lead them to their sourness, you know. Yeah, but Mm. I think for me, it's taken me a long time to get to that point, you know. Um, If you can get there quick, then great. But for me, it's taken a long time to kind of get to that stage in life. Yeah, Mm. and that whole thing of um, just laughing it off can apply to the really emotional side of it as well. Like, sometimes that old saying of, like, if I don't laugh, I'm going to cry. That's yeah. us. No, nah, that's so true. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, um, so my aunt isn't very well. And I wouldn't call myself a young adult carer because, like, I know that my dad is the one that is, like, her primary carer. Like, I see her, like, once a week to check in on her. But it's like, if I don't do it, my dad will be there to do it. Like, I do it. As an add-on. Yeah, as an add-on, yeah. But um, so she's had cancer three times um, and now her health is at a place where she will never be fully well again. Mm. And she walks with a walking stick. Um, and we were out a couple of weeks ago and she had a fall. And like, I picked her up and we kind of, we laughed it off. I was like, oh God, you've had one too many gin and tonics, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> you just have to have that attitude sometimes. Otherwise, you're literally going... To melt down. Yeah. And it's going to affect your mental health, their mental health. Like, sometimes you have to be able to laugh at the situation. Yeah, I guess for me it was tricky because I don't have a big family. So my only, like, real adults are, like, my dad, my mom, my uncle, who I barely talked to at the time. Like, we're we're not... My immediate family is very close, but because my parents are older, a lot of them are. So when I was taking care of my dad in particular... I think there were things that because we didn't have a good relationship leading up to me taking care of him, there are things that we constantly butted heads about. And Mm -hmm. I think they're also just in his aim to try and keep control over everything that he could possibly keep control. Mm -hmm. I remember one time we're in the supermarket and same thing. He wanted to like go down the aisles with me. I was like, no, can't do it. And we had a proper argument in the middle of the supermarket to the point where I just let him do it, (laughs) even though I knew that ultimately he would and as it happens, so did have a fall. And then obviously, which then made it even worse. And then he then felt bad. And it's kind of that back and forth that you constantly have with people when you're trying to take care of them and they're trying to A, not feel like a burden, Mm. but then also B, just trying to keep some semblance of self about who they are. Mm. And that's connected to what they do on a regular basis. You know what I mean? Like you said, your aunt wants to be able to go to the supermarket, but sometimes she just can't. Mm. And part of it is, that's part of who she is as her identity you know what I mean because that's part of her routine or having somebody to talk to or watch TV with or having control over the radio 
station, like anything. It could be something small that for them, it's just they need to hold on to it so much and then it creates conflict and it's like it becomes difficult for you as a carer to manage that, I think, sometimes. But that's a really good approach, kind Mm -hmm. of just taking it to yourself, laughing it off and realizing that that too will pass. This is the Dope Black Women podcast. So, um, Kemi, you obviously mentioned that your mum, when she first fell ill, you were 19, so you're in the midst of university. How do you kind of balance the pressure of studying slash working along with being a carer? That's really hard to answer because I feel like for myself, I didn't necessarily balance it very well. So, um, doing my bachelor's um, when mum was first diagnosed because she was diagnosed so early there wasn't necessarily lots for me to do in the way of care I was kind of you know phoning home a lot more regularly than I would making sure I was visiting home more often just you know just to kind of check on her but I think I came home um, as I said 21 and I decided that knowing the prognosis like knowing what Alzheimer's is and how it um, how it how it affects people's health and how they deteriorate I thought okay let me do my master's let me do it now so that because I know that in a few years time I'm probably not going to be able to do it because Mm -hmm. mom's health is going to be so bad that getting out the house is going to be tricky so I had started my master's degree um, and unfortunately by the second semester the the timetable that I was given and the amount of care that mom needed the two things just could not balance and this was before I was getting any kind of support from from the local authority. So at that point, I had to make the decision. Do I support my mum where she needs it? I mean, I had instances where I'd be out, I'd be on the phone to her, and I'm saying, mum, have you eaten? She's like, yeah, 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 I've eaten, I've eaten. But obviously, Alzheimer's affects your memory. Mm. So she thinks she's eaten, but she hasn't, because she's not remembering. And then she would just collapse. On the phone, I just hear boof on the floor. And I'm calling down the phone like, mum, what's going on? Very scary. So those things were happening and obviously realising that, you know, I'm out for the whole day um, and I can't get back as quickly as I need to. She needs me. And actually, what at this point, I need to make a decision. Do I try and continue my studies, but then potentially put her in a position where her her life could be at risk? Mm. Um, Or do I kind of go home and just focus on that for now? And that's what I did. So definitely tricky. And I think one of the things that I took away from that was then when I did get involved in the carers support organization in Nottingham, um, I kind of was quite heavily involved in a lot of projects that they were doing where they were looking into supporting carers that were within educational institutions. And I was using my personal experiences of the lack of support to sort of say, you know, you're missing a trick here. Like there's so many people that are going to be falling through the cracks. Like those people that have low attendance and, you know, missing their lectures, etc. It's not because they don't want to be there. It's because a lot of them have got stuff going on at home that mm. is really impacting them. And by not looking into that and not supporting them properly, you're, you're making it more difficult for those people to progress within their education. Um, and similarly with work. I mean, following on from that, I then started working for the British Red Cross Um, but on a part-time basis and it was super flexible. Mm. So for that, I was able to kind of balance working flexibly, sort of part-time and being at home. But again, at this point, I had care workers coming in for mum. So I was able to sort of, to do the two. But you kind of, you have to have extra support. There's there's no way around it, realistically. Sorry, on on that note of support and kind of going back, Mm -hmm. 
when she got the diagnosis, yeah. was you given or was she given any information about what it actually meant? I mean, we kind of knew. We had, um, so my nan had Alzheimer's before mum mm. um, and we'd seen the progression and what had happened and my uncle had taken care of my nan for, for many, many years up until she passed. So we'd, we'd seen it firsthand. So we didn't necessarily need, need that it. information. Yeah. Um, I mean, sort of now in, in the work that I do, I know that a lot of the services make sure that they give people as much information as possible from the very beginning mm. so that you can kind of yeah. try as best as can to prepare yourself for what's about to happen over the mm. course of however many years. Mm. That's a good point, actually, because I think when my parents got sick, so in Jamaica, there's loads of information about breast cancer because it's such a well-known common thing. But pancreatic cancer, there is no information about it whatsoever. Mm. And so for us not even knowing what it was about it was kind of tricky to navigate in terms of do we go for second opinions? Do we listen to this doctor? What doctor do we listen to? So yeah, mm. the access to information is definitely super important. So obviously um, you're working at Red Cross. So like was charity work something you were always like passionate about? Yeah, yeah, always. Um, and I think for me, I always wanted to do work that involved helping people, um, which probably fed into why I kind of readily sort of launched into caring for mum like mm. I've always been that kind of person um so yeah so that was sort of the, the career choice I mean I was at the time when I was doing my master's I was studying international relations and the area of the Red Cross that I'd got into was around um working with refugees and asylum seekers so it kind of fed in so mm. that was the, my kind of way in um and it just I don't know for me it just it feels nice to kind of do things for other people mm. that's mm. always been sort of you know and something what that's makes close to home as well yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. course which obviously you know the job that I do now um it's funny because I wasn't actually looking for a new job so I was based in Nottingham prior when I was at the Red Cross um and I was at work one day just a little bit bored and I was like you know what my manager's not looking let me just start looking for jobs while her back's turned and then <laughs> as, as soon as they turn around you close that screen <laughs> <laughs> but then um yeah, but then this job came up and it was supporting 18 to 25-year-olds that are caring for loved ones. And the work around it was very similar to the work that I was doing with the Red Cross in terms of the kind of one-to-one -one support work of a vulnerable group of people. And I was just sat there and I was thinking, I could do this easily. Like, I've got experience of working one-to-one -one with people already. And experience of being those people. Yeah, and I am that person. Mm. I am one of those people. And at this time, I st at, at that time... I still had that caring role. So mm. it just felt quite, it felt quite natural. Like, I actually just thought that the job, it was, it was a sign. It was meant to be. Yeah. It definitely know. was though. It's the only yeah. job that I applied for. Um, I wasn't looking. <laughs> yeah. Three years later, yeah, I'm, st I'm still there doing what I'm doing. And, you know, it's, it's been really important for me because what I've been able to do is use a lot of, you know, a lot of my kind of negative experiences and try and ensure that other young people can avoid some of the pitfalls that I've had to kind of deal with and manage mm. by, you know, giving them the knowledge and the tools to deal with things effectively. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's, been, it's been quite a blessing, to be yeah. honest. But when you entered this role um, working for a carer's charity, um, A, did you tell your bosses about your own experience? And B, did you ever feel worried that this is going to be triggering or this is going to be too overwhelming for me oh really you know um so okay. yeah they, they, knew, 
No, so they knew from the very beginning. I made yeah. sure. Well, I mean, so I, you got the job. I used no, no, one hundred percent. So I used it. I had to do um, like a presentation as part of my interview. I used um, my personal experiences to feed into that that knowledge base, and you know, it's it's quite important. I think for that kind of work that you have a really good grasp of the situation. You know, I think previously the person that was doing my job before was an older woman kind of out of touch with young people. Right. If you're supporting young people, you kind of need to... Be down with it. You kind of yeah. need to be down, down with the yeah. kids. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so no, they knew from the get-go. And I think um, what I've always said is... So my mum passed away while I was working in this job at the Carers Charity. And actually, I kind of felt like the job had some kind of healing properties for me in a way because... It was, you know, like I'm dealing with this thing and, you know, my mum's passed away and I've been caring for her for like a decade. Um, but actually, I can still use these experiences that I've had to better someone else's life, you know. Mm -hmm. And that in itself was such a good feeling that I feel like it really helped me to kind of manage some of the emotions that I was dealing with at the time and seeing really positive changes in people's lives because of what I was doing for them mm. made me feel so much better. And so it, it just, as I said, I feel like the job was made for me in that way. Mm. It's definitely helped me to kind of get through some really difficult periods. In the job now, and obviously having to work with young people, do you see a reflection of what they're going through in what you've experienced and all that the fact time. that you have that direct way of resolving that case as a yeah, result? Yeah, all the time. I see myself in so many people. Um, and as I said, because I work in Camden and it's quite diverse, there's a lot of young black women that I work with, you know. And I, you know, I see women that are struggling to go to university or to get jobs and you know that that's me 10 years ago mm. you know so I, I see that and it's it's quite helpful like what I sometimes will do is just speak to people on a level and just say look when I'm saying to you I know what you're talking about and I get what you're saying it's because I really do and it's not something that I broadcast to the people that I support but sometimes you kind of have to do that to kind of get through to people sometimes it's, it helps to say I've been where you are you know, mm. my situation might have been different to yours, but these are the similarities. And look, I'm still here now. You know, I'm working, I'm doing all of these things. Don't think that you this is that. it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I think that would be, be quite reassuring because, you know, like, when you're going through something and your friends will be like, I get it. But they no, don't. Then they don't. <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> you don't get a thing. Be quiet. But, like, in this scenario, it's like, even if you feel like you don't get it, you have... You, they know that you have to get it to some degree because you've literally lived through it. Yeah, yeah. No, I really do think it helps. Um, and as I said, it's not something that I broadcast, but you can find when working with young people that some people are kind of just difficult to to crack, you know? And sometimes it really helps to build that bond to sort of say, you know, this is me. Let me tell you my truth. And that might help you to, to open up to mm. me and then we can move forward and make some changes that will be positive for you. Mm. And when you're working with those young people, do you find, is there a difference in terms of the code that needs to be cracked or the attitudes or the challenges when it's a black carer? Not really. I mean, as I say, the, the similarities due to, you know, people's health conditions and, and things like that have, have, I think, a bigger impact. But I guess for me, on a more personal level, when I see other young black women or, or, or black men as well, it makes me want to, it makes me... Oh. Give him a big hug. 
Basically, yeah. <laughs> I like to hug anyway. So, you know, and I have to, we're not allowed to hug people, so I have to refrain myself. But it makes me really want to kind of just comfort them and mm. really say, because, you know, because you do see yourself in, in these people because we, you know, we're, a lot of us are in the same boat. We're going to face a lot of the same challenges. Mm. Um, so to have someone that looks like you, talks like you, thinks the same way as you, is brought up similar way to you, that is saying, you know, you can do this. You know, you, you you're gonna you're gonna come through this. You're gonna be fine. I think it helps. It's mm. like a mentor, isn't it? Kind of. Yeah. yeah kind I have of. to say that Kimmy actually gives the best hugs on the face <laughs> of the planet. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be crying and she'll like proper put me in her lap, oh. stroke my face, <laughs> like, like you a little proper, baby. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's really good at it. Yeah, can't help it. So Leanne, um, because your experience is one that was in a different country um, and a predominantly black country. Do you think, is there things that the UK could learn or vice versa, whether that's cultural or, I don't know, just in terms of the conversation in general? Um, I mean, I think what the UK could learn. Um, I think I will say that particularly in Jamaica, the quality of healthcare, and maybe that's because we have to pay for it, is so much better and when I'm saying the quality of care the quality of care that you get with the limited relatively limited resources when I compare the types of the warmth of the nurses that are that took care of my dad whenever we were in hospital the way that they went above and beyond both doctors and nurses I could call doctors and nurses at like two o'clock in the morning you know here you can't stay with your uh, uh, well every hospital I've been they won't answer you won't let well (laughs) a they won't answer it's difficult to find a nurse and I know that NHS is over over inundated and everything like that but also it's just like basic manners I remember I went through an operation when I was here and I woke up and I was alone and my partner at the time wasn't he was in the waiting room or he went to go and park the car or something like that so I started crying and the nurse came in and she was like what are you crying for? <laughs> and yeah, but whereas my for me, when I was taking care of my dad and anytime we'd go into the hospital, they remembered who he was because he went to the hospital almost every single month. But they remembered who he was. They went out of their way. Um, you know, usually visiting hours are over. They always made sure there was a comfortable like uh, reclining chair in the room because my dad didn't want me to leave. So I was able to stay there through the night. They allowed me to have showers because they were also wow. over, um, because they were inundated and short staffed. And because we developed, a, you know, a kind of a, a rapport, they allowed me to go and get stuff and do stuff on my own. So by the time of it, uh, by the end of it, I was actually quite well aware of how to make a bed or how to change an IV and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure there are ethical issues around that. But <laughs> I just think... Just a few. <laughs> okay, so I messed up. But the, the idea is, is that just how nice they were and how understanding they were. We have a friend that was in Nottingham that whose mom was sick in Nottingham. And I remember she had gone to like park the car, same kind of scenario. And a nurse came in and white nurse and... She was asking questions about, you know, why she should be moved to a different um, area because she was in ICU at the time or whatever it's called here. And she was being moved and she kept asking, but why am I being moved? Because this is not what the doctors told me. You know, this is, you know, you have to understand that I have a brain injury. This is a real situation. And the nurse started shouting at her. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, the nurse was crying. Oh. 
and was, was like, again? you've offended was, me. Yeah. yeah, she was white. <laughs> She's like, you've offended me. You've hurt my feelings. You've made me cry. I'm like, you're talking to somebody who is sick with a brain injury in ICU and you're crying? Like, how is this even a thing? So I think that is probably one takeaway that I would take because I think both uh, because of the lack of resources that we have and because of the short staffing that we do have and because the lack of money like nurses do not get paid a lot of money in Jamaica but they still manage to put on a brave face and be kind and gentle and caring and do their job so I find it difficult when you know when I'm comparing it to the NHS that that is I've never experienced that and I've had quite a few interactions with Mm. the NHS I don't know if Kemi can speak to that I mean it's been very mixed, yeah. I mean, I've had nurses who have been absolutely fantastic, like, you know, praise them down to the bone. And then I've had some that I've wanted to take off my shoe. I'm boxing in the Like, it's, yeah, it's definitely balanced. And the problem is, I think, is that just speaking with people in general in terms of their experiences in NHS hospitals, it's... It's normally negative. It's normally it? negative, yeah. to mm. be honest. But yeah. When I was ill, it was a hospital that I kept going to that was near me. And my granddad was like, whatever you do, do not go there again. He's like, pay for the cab to go to, I can't remember which one it was, but it's like one in central London and go to that one. Mm. I didn't want to pay for the cabs. I didn't <laughs> but, but like throughout that experience of being ill, I went to like quite a few different hospitals and it wasn't until my last one, which was in Kent, and their care was amazing. Like, amazing. Like when, when I went to the hospital and I was in A&E and they saw I was in pain, they fast-tracked me. I've never had that before, ever. And, like, it was mad because I got referred to that hospital from, like, a... You know those walk-in surgeries that you can do? Yeah. Not the doctors, but the doctors. Yeah, yeah, I went to one of those, and I I was, like, crying in the waiting room. I was, like, laying on the floor. I was in so much pain. And when I went into the room, the woman was, like... I said to the woman, I need to lay down. Because I was in so much pain, I was, like, I need mm. to lay down. And she was, like, no, you need to... I feel so angry. She was, like, no, you need to sit in the chair. And I'm, like, no, no, no. I can't stand up or sit down. I seem to lay down. I'll answer all your questions from laying on the bed. She was like, <laughs> she was like, no, because I need to ask you questions. I said, just turn around. <laughs> I started going crazy. I literally started shouting. I went ballistic. My mum was like, Rashan, calm down. Like this, someone's gonna help you. Just calm down. And my mum asked, my mum, you know, like people say they can feel the spirit or like. Mm. My mum must have had some sort of spidey senses to know that this woman was gonna help me because she referred me to the the good hospital, which is how everything ended up getting better. But this woman was telling me I can't lay down for her to do the thing, where you, what's it called? Where you, oh, the blood, blood pressure, pressure. And to ask me questions that they already know on the notes because I've been going to the hospital like, every day for the last 10 days. And she wouldn't let me, she, she refused to let me lay down on the bed. So after she asked me the questions that I'd already done in the previous doctor's like the same surgery, like it's a weird setup. It's a doctor's, but you still have to go to two different doctors. Like you go to one for like, you go to one to write a few notes and then you wait in the waiting room, then you go to the actual doctor. Okay. okay. It's all like a hospital operation. Like, you know, if you go to a hospital, you get to see the nurse yeah. and then you go to the doctor. Yeah. It's like that, but it's like in a doctor's surgery. Weird, anywho. <laughs> but it was like that, yeah. And I was like, you're asking me the same questions. Like, my mum's right here. Why can't I ask my mum? She literally was asking me, what's your date of birth? But imagine she's asking me these questions, but I'm in pain. Yeah. Like, and they wouldn't give me medication because I was on medication and it wasn't working. And the medication they wanted to give me, they couldn't give me until this one had worn off. Because you know you've got some medication, you've got to have it like every four hours. Oh, yeah. And I was on like two hours. And they were like, we can't give you medication. So I'm like, let me lay down then. It was a joke. God. Yeah, struggles. That was very traumatic. I feel really stressed now. I feel really stressed. This is the Dope Black Women podcast. Kemi, I just want to ask you about quickly. I think it's really admirable 
the way you told your story because I know that um, recently, I think it's only within the last couple of years, more research is coming out that Alzheimer's and dementia is just as common in the black community. But for a long time, it was like we didn't want to acknowledge it even existed in the black community. Um, it's kind of this idea like, oh, people just get older and they forget their memory. And that's just what happens. Like, So with your own mum, did she struggle to accept the situation? Yeah, definitely. I think in the early years, and I guess partly because it was diagnosed so early, so she still had, you know, she she was still, she still had the cognition to, to know this is actually my diagnosis and this is what's happening to me. You kind of get to a point with Alzheimer's where the brain has sort of decayed to the point where you don't really realise what's wrong with you because you're that ill, if that mm. makes sense. Um, so, you know, in, in those early years when she was really aware um, kind of of her diagnosis and of the prognosis of it, um, I think those were the times when it was really difficult to kind of manage her emotions. Mm. She would get really upset because she she knew what was coming, you know. And it's quite funny because, as I said, a few years later, as, she'd, as her health had deteriorated, her kind of mood and her mental state was actually better. She was a lot happier because I guess she didn't have that awareness anymore that, that she was ill. yeah that she was ill she was just quite happy laughing and mm. whining up to reggae music in the middle of the supermarket <laughs> yeah. And things. yeah exactly so yeah it's difficult to manage those things in the early years when people really understand the situation and what is happening to them and I think that for me took a lot more of a toll in terms of one managing her emotions and then managing my reaction to her mm. emotions it's, mm. it's a really difficult thing. And as mm. I said, when you don't have the support around that, people don't really understand. It's not something that's talked about. Yeah. Um, there, there is a thing within the black community where people don't like to be labelled as being mad. And a lot of the time, sort of years ago, people who had Alzheimer's were just deemed as being mad people. Mm. And people didn't want that label, the stigma around it. Um, I think even like with my nan, as an example, she had Alzheimer's, which we realised when she'd sort of deteriorated quite badly. But in the early years, you know, it wasn't... She didn't go to the doctor. She just kind of lived with it. And, you know, she forgot things and, and you know, her memory was really poor. But it just... She, was, she wasn't ever going get, to get to a stage where she would go and actually seek help for that. It got, it got to the point where she was so ill that we'd have to get doctors to come and visit. And then they were saying, oh, yeah, she's got Alzheimer's and she's probably had it for the last eight years or wow. something. But, yeah, there's a lot of stigma around sickness in general. Mm. Um, I don't know whether now that's kind of changing with the sort of younger generations, but definitely the older ones. Um, yeah, being labelled as mad was really, really negative. Mm. I'm just, have you seen the film um, Still Alice? No, someone told me about this, but, when they, but when they told me, it was quite soon after my mum had passed, yeah, and I said, you know what, soon. I don't know if I'm ready for that, and I've just sort of forgotten, so thank you for the reminder. Yeah. About? It's about, it is a white woman. But it's still a really good film. And she is diagnosed with early onset dementia. And like, she's so physically healthy. Like, she goes to the gym, she has a full time job, she eats really healthy. And like, slowly, slowly, she just starts forgetting things. And like, then she's diagnosed with dementia. She's like, this can't be possible. Like, I'm only in my 50s. This can't be possible. And just the way it like just develops and then there's like one day where she can't remember her name and it's so sad but it's such a good film is it a good movie i don't know if it's on netflix actually. no i don't think it is oh, it's you know the good. i'm trying to remember her name red hair julianne julianne moore 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say a shadow. But it's a good film. But like that <laughs> film won a couple Oscars. Yeah. And so like after that, I think people were a bit more like, oh, like dementia is a really serious thing. Yeah. Like it isn't just something that affects your mind. It affects your physical everything. health. It affects yeah. everything. Everything. And I think that's the thing for me, um, as I mentioned in terms of, you know, making the decision to put my mom in a nursing home, one of the one of the things that really kind of propelled that decision was when she was I was no not no longer able to to give her food. I was having to feed her for quite some time prior to that, but then it got to a point where she was refusing food. She wasn't she wasn't eating, she wasn't swallowing and at that point it was like this is I can't do this anymore. Mm. This you this this requires trained NHS mm. staff, yeah, to kind of deal with mm. this. Um and yeah, as you say, it's it's an illness that really does impact every single part of you. As soon as something impacts the brain, you know that it's going to affect everything else. Your you know your ability to walk. I think put it this way: by the time my mum passed away, um, she really was only able to blink and breathe. That was mm -hmm. th those were literally her only functions. And it's you know it's important that actually people talk about this a bit more um, because you know we. People don't know a lot about it and it's, it's you know, talking about people's experiences and really being honest about what happens um, raises awareness and, you know, hopefully that draws more attention um, to the illness and maybe gets it, you know, more funding so that maybe mm. one day they'll find some kind of cure. Yeah. And I think um, it just helps to normalize the conversation definitely. around, because as you said, there is such a stigma. And I think when young people who are young adult carers find that they're in a position like yours, it's like, oh my God, what do I do? But when they hear somebody's story like yours, mm -hmm. I think it makes a huge difference in terms of saying, A, not only can I do this too, but just knowing that you're not alone makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, get, and I guess that's why as well, from a support, support point of view, it's actually important that young adult carers have their own support. As I said, when, when you turn 18, the way that the support structure is at the moment, um, you're automatically deemed as being an adult. And therefore, everything that is open to adults from 18 to 100 is, is you know, you can access those things. But what happens is you've got support groups and you have, um, you know, different things that you can access that people who are in their 70s might access. Mm. And that's great. They need it. But you as a 20-year-old who's navigating university or trying to find your first job, you can't really relate to someone that is a lot older that's in that position, even though they might be going through something similar. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely an advocate for people of that age having really tailored support to navigate what is a very difficult time. Just quickly, I, m I remember when I was in Antigua and I saw, I was staying out the countryside and I saw this old lady and every morning I'd, I worked there for like a month and every morning when I'd get up, she'd always be on her porch Every time I'd come back, she'd be on her porch. <laughs> this is for a month. So when it hit the second week, I, I, I started, no, when it hit like the first week, I started talking to her. So like, you know, I don't know what the Caribbean is like outside of Antigua, but like you could bus, the bus can stop anywhere. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So her house, her house happened to be the bus stop. I used to go into her porch because it would be too hot. And she's sitting there for her and talking to her. And then when I got talking to her, she like said that she didn't really have any family and she wasn't eating. And things like that. And then I made it like my mission for the rest of the holidays to now like look out for her and be there for her. So why do you guys think we have this natural expectation to care for them? Because I'm actually, when I'm thinking about it, I don't know this woman from Adam. 
But I really, like, like, afterwards, I kept going up. There's, like, a guy who had a farm nearby who I became friends with. He was lovely. And I'd always be like to him... No, he wasn't like... Yeah, anyway. And I'd always... <laughs> I'd always be like to him... Because he gave me, like, lots of free, like, fresh fruit and fresh veg. Like, and he'd come to my house and, like, cook up food for us. It was amazing. And then I remember saying to him, like, would you mind giving some of your food to her rather than me? Because I'm on holiday. I'm working, but... Essentially, it's a holiday. I can buy my own food. But, like, this woman is not getting any food. And she was like, no, she does get food. Her family drop it off, but she doesn't eat it. And they don't stay. They just drop it off and leave. And I was thinking, this is even more problematic. And it was just like... I'm just trying... It's just as we've been talking today in this conversation, I'm just thinking, I didn't really have any business, like, being with her every day. And even when I went back, I, I, I didn't get, a, get, get around to it because it's a lot further than where I was staying. But I really wanted it to be my mission to go and check for her and, like, mm. make sure she was all right, see if she's still alive because she was really, really old. But like, where do you guys think that comes from? Do you know what? And I know it is something that is cultural because we do come from that kind of village mentality and like, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, that kind of thing. So I know that that is embedded. But I think actually, even though we might be like that, you'll find, and as Kemi has pointed out earlier in terms of some of our family members and et cetera, not everybody is built like that. Like my sister and brother, bless them, not to say that they loved my parents any less, but they just weren't physically or emotionally or mentally in a state where they were capable of taking care of her, my parents in like a physical way. Mm. So some of the like more physical stuff in terms of bathing and that kind of thing was really difficult for them in terms of... So um, I remember I, just as an example for the eating thing. So a lot of people or a lot of older people won't eat because they don't have any company and they want somebody to sit with them and talk to them while they're eating. They don't want to just be given food and be left to eat alone because that's equally, that's just as sad. So my brother would always come to the hospital, but he would always come check in, but he would never like eat when my dad was eating or they'd sit and watch TV, but at some point in time, he'd just get up and go. And so I think... Whereas for me, my natural inclination, and obviously you've said your natural inclination, is to literally spend time, mm. regardless of whether you're in the process of taking care of them or whether they just want somebody there. So mm. I think it is something that is quite individual. Definitely. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, yeah, again, sort of what Leanne is saying, it's it's this sense of community. And, you know, I think a lot of us in this room have probably been raised in that sort of way where, you know, you're you're you have a lot of people around you, you have a lot of close relationships with the people that are around you um and that that definitely stays with you as you you know as you mature and i definitely think that there's something about having a lot of empathy for other people that that you know that quality of being raised in the village definitely sort of it it fosters that mentality mm. um but yeah not everyone shares that that is, that is for sure. And you can see it reflected in your lifestyle, like the way you say that you always hang out with all the people. When you see Kemi's friends, she's very much like that kind of motherly, let's do this. She's always in the kitchen cooking for people and that kind of thing. So I think it's it's you can tell the type of person that's more inclined to be a good carer than somebody who's just not. Mm. Maybe that's my nan's problem. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> Let's hope you and your nan work it out. You know, for all our For the next episode, give us a little update. <laughs> um, um, what I will say in terms of, you know, support for young adult carers and young carers in general, um, every local authority in the UK has provisions to support carers. It might not be widely advertised, but trust me, they have it. If people are listening and they know someone that's in that situation or they themselves are in that situation, I would just... Um, 
go online, Google Carers Trust. Um, the organisation that I work with falls under that, which is a national charity, um, and it will point you in the right direction. Um, failing that, I'm happy for people to reach out to me if they want advice, if they just want someone to talk to, to share their experiences, then I'm very happy to do that. And by all means, if somebody wants to contact the Dope Black Woman page and we can put you in touch with Kimmy directly or help in any way, shape or form, we'd be more than happy to do that as well. So I just want to end this program with um, each of you, if you could just give a little golden nugget of advice to anyone who's listening that is a young carer or maybe they found out they were a young carer by listening to this podcast, what would you like them to know? Um, I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways from that experience, which I was I shared with Kemi earlier today, actually, is that afterwards, because there will be an afterwards where you're no longer a carol, um, one of the biggest difficulties for me in transitioning out of that was learning how to put myself first again. So you spend such a long time putting your own emotions at you know, they take a back seat and you put everyone else before you. It actually becomes, especially if you are somebody who's naturally empathetic and naturally a carer or a giver, it's really difficult to put yourself back in a position where you put your feelings and your own needs and desires and dreams first. And so I think um, just always remember that you're important and that you matter and that, you know, know it's your time and that take that power back kind of thing. I think for me, I would definitely say that asking for help is never a negative. Um, I know that sometimes it can be difficult, um, but don't ever feel that by asking for help, you are admitting defeat in any way. You're not. Actually, asking for help is probably one of the most powerful things Mm -hmm. that you can do in terms of supporting yourself. What I always say to people is you cannot support anyone else if you yourself are not in a good place. You have to make sure that you, you're taking care of yourself first, um, similar to what Leanne is saying, and ask for the help. It is there. I was going to say what Leanne said, and then I was like, okay, cool, I'm going to change it. <laughs> I was going to say what you said, and I was like, okay. <laughs> so thanks, guys. Um, hmm, on the spot. I think what I would say would be to not be afraid to find a support group. Because I feel like no matter what you're going through, whether it's being a carer, battling depression, battling anxiety, talking to people that kind of get the page that you're coming from um, and understand your own experiences can only benefit you. Yeah, that's what I want to end with. Well, thank you so much, Kemi, for being our first guest. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Um, So where can people find you? Where can they find out more about the work you do and your story and just your platforms? What are they? So um, you can find me on Instagram. Um, My Instagram name is ChemChem, which I will spell because it's a little awkward. So that's K3M underscore K3M. The regular ChemChem was already taken. (laughs) Three M's. The number three. three. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) where's the E? (laughs) Thank you to everyone that's listened to this episode. Um, Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from and stay in touch with us for all the latest news and conversations and just everything we're talking about. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at DopeBlackWomen1 and on Facebook, we are DopeBlackWomen. We'll be back with you next week. Until then, stay blessed and stay black. Unapologetically black. Blackity black. Blacktastic. (laughs) 
sometimes I get the tube to work and someone could like push in front of me and I'll think about it for a good three hours. Yeah, like, that should piss you off. You're at work, like, I should have pushed that bitch back. If I ever see her again, it's on. And you know you won't. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.